welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. If you have a Bible this morning, I would like for you to turn to one of your choice passages, not just any random, but I'm going to give you a few, and then I'm going to read these three. One is in Genesis chapter number 8, verses 15 through 20, and uh, if you don't like Genesis, you can turn to Joshua chapter 22, and if you don't like the Old Testament, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. The notice before I preach today is this will be different. Some of you probably think it's different every week. Not so much expositional, but mainly topically expositional on a particular topic. Last week I told you there was a chance that I would be preaching what I'm actually preaching now. Some of you have had conversation about it because we've spoken, and I was talking to somebody this week, and they said, yeah, you got yourself in a mess, didn't you? And after a week of Hours and hours of research and study and preparation. Yeah, I'm in a mess. And uh, you get to be a part of that today. I've chosen these three passages of Scripture because they all are different passages that speak of the same topic. The altar. Would you stand as we read and honor God's Word? If you're visiting here, we appreciate you being here. Uh, We do believe... I don't speak for everybody, but as a church, we believe this is God's inspired word. It is true, and it is perfect from beginning to end, and we read it and study it and believe it as such. Even the book of Genesis, chapter number eight, I'll start there first. Now, I was kidding earlier. If you want to read and flip through all of them, you can go there on your own. That was just trying to save you some time. This is after the flood And Noah and his family are saved, and God spoke to Noah, saying, Go forth, get out of the ark, you and your wife, and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both fowl and cattle, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, everything God just said. In verse 20, and Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Later in Joshua chapter number 22 in verse 26 and 27, we see another familiar event Joshua's leading the people of Israel in verse 26. He says, therefore, we said, let us now prepare to build us an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between us and you and our generations after us that we might do the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings 
that your children may not say to our children in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. Important. Could stop and preach for about three minutes there, but I won't. But the altar was a witness. It was an, a place of remembrance, of celebration, so that our kids and our grandkids and their kids could remember that we served the Lord and how he delivered us. And then in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching, and he says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there at the altar you remember that your brother has ought against you, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First, then be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer thy gift. The word altar in the King James is there 342 times in the Old Testament and 22 times in the New Testament. I thought I'd save us some time and just read three passages <laughs> this morning. I'm going to preach a message that I've never preached. I've thought about it a lot. And I don't want anybody to leave mad today, especially at me. But the title of the message is, What Happened to the Altar? What Happened to the Altar? Would you pray with me, Father? We're grateful for your word that we have to study. Not just to know it, but to know you. God, you know my heart today better than I know my heart. You know my desire for this church and for every Bible-believing church. And I pray your Holy Spirit will help me today not to say something I shouldn't, not to just preach opinion, to preach your word, and that your Holy Spirit will convict our hearts, that we would be spiritually mature and grow in grace and knowledge and understand your desire for our life. To be men and women, teenagers, believers who pray regularly, who notice and understand our need to call on you. The big things and in the little things and all things. God, I pray that you speak to us today. Teach us. Convict our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Over the last few weeks, I've preached three weeks on the topic of prayer. If you were here, then you know that. We discussed the remedy for worry, and God tells us that we can, we don't have to worry about anything because we can pray about everything. And then we saw Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus teaches us how to pray privately, sincerely, simply. And last week was a prayer of dependence in Psalm 25, where David is praying to God, a man after God's own heart who has, who's not perfect, who has problems, who has issues. But the entire chapter is a prayer to God, demonstrating his dependence on him. 
And today I want to preach, try to preach on the topic or the question, what happened to the altar in the church? I am overwhelmed with information today. I could babble and ramble for hours, plural, and I don't want to. But I want us to wake up today as Central Baptist Church and listen to what God has to say. My, my attempt is not to convince you of something that you need convincing of. I'm not here to argue or debate. This is not open floor debate time. But if you've been in church any amount of time, and I'm gonna just be localized and say, in the south, and I know we got some northern friends around us, some fresh northern friends, that's all right. We got some that used to be northern, they're still kind of hybrids, but if you've been around church, not just this church, but a church in the south, a church in the southeast, a good Bible-believing evangelical church for any amount of time, you cannot deny the reality that something has happened to the church altar. I remember the times where churches I went to, whether it was Central Baptist Church or my mom used to drag us to random revivals and didn't know that was, that's just a whole different story and why we would end up places that we didn't know the pastor, we didn't know the church, didn't know if they had snakes or, or poison or what, but they had a revival and it was close and we would go. In all my life, and I'm not that old and I'm not that young, I remember going to churches where not just at the end of the service, but during the service, people would leave their seats and go to an altar and pray. Many time in tears, many time in praise, people would come together, people would see her go to the altar and three or four would go with her or people would see him and four or five would go with him. And in the middle of services, while you're singing, while there's preaching, and definitely at the end, altars would be full. And I'm not talking about 1850. I'm not even talking about 1950. I'm talking about in my lifetime and in your lifetime. But no man, no woman of any spiritual maturity can deny the reality that that is no longer the reality. So the question is, what happened? Something happened. God is still the same God. The Holy Spirit is still the same Holy Spirit. We're still in the dispensation of grace and mercy, and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit is just as real as it has ever been. But the altars are empty. Not just during service, not just during worship, but at the end of the service. Now, I know some of you are a little more learned theologically than others, but I'm going to ask you, if you know who you are, to just bear with me. Please don't make any assumptions before I get to where I'm going, because we're in this together. And my goal is to help the church, not just Central Baptist Church, but anybody else that listens to this or watches this, 
any other pastor who's been convinced or been concerned so much that they close the altars of the church, intentionally or unintentionally. Because something's happened to the altar in Bible-believing churches today. Many of you remember the days where you see pictures like I've got behind me to where altars were full. I could have taken pictures from Central Baptist Church. Before we get where we're going, I want to ask you, and don't please don't answer out loud, but I just want you to think about these rhetorical, what's wrong with that? How could that possibly be something we don't want to see in God's house? Who would, who would think, please don't answer out loud, just let's ponder these questions. Who would think, you know what, we don't need that around here anymore? It's hard for me to stay on track today, but I would like to think if there were more, that would be less of what we're seeing on our TVs and on our streets today. Individuals, families, church families, friends gathered around to pray with and for each other. This Wednesday, I took a poll. It's better than Barna. Better than Pew, I took the poll here at the pews of our church. Had about 80 people respond. And so if you weren't here, you're not included in this, so you can say, well, they didn't call me. <laughs> but I'm curious about our church. Why, I'm the pastor of this church. I wanna know this church. I wanna know where people are at. And I asked, and then I had Joe over with the youth, I said, uh, let them take this too, and there were five questions, and I want you to hear that 89% of those who were polled grew up in a church with an altar. And 93% of those who were polled, y'all didn't miss it, I'm not, I didn't call random people in Kannapolis, these are our people at church. 93% said they'd been to an altar and prayed in their life. I don't mean this the way it's going to sound, but 93% of the people have recently been to the altar here at Central Baptist Church. And I would dare to say 93% of my, almost every Baptist church in this area would say they grew up in the church with an altar and they'd been to an altar. But I would dare say 25% of that 93% have visited frequently recently. What happened to the altar? I've asked that question enough, right? Let's see what happened. First, I want us to look at the definition of the altar, both biblically and historically. And I understand that biblically is historically. I think it helps us to understand where we get the idea of an altar and we find it in three passages that I just read. We see it 342 times in the Old Testament, and the word altar in the Hebrew and later referred to from the Greek back to the always means or always comes from a word for a place of sacrifice or a place of slaughter, a place of death. 
Even in the New Testament, I read Matthew chapter 5, and and Jesus is speaking to those religious leaders, uh, but he's speaking in temple terms of the altar. Of course, that altar's a little different than this carpeted altar here, but the significance still exists, and the, the picture is still there of a place of death, a place of sacrifice, a place of consecration, a place of dedication, and it's pointless for you to dedicate your life to Christ, Jesus said, uh, or a gift to Christ, which could be your life as a living sacrifice, when you have hate or alt against your brother or a brother against you. But he refers to the place of giving, the place of sacrifice. Basically, in the Old Testament, we see altars of sacrifice and altars of remembrance. I read one of each. The very first mention of altar is in Genesis chapter 8, before the law was ever even given, before Leviticus was ever written. God freed or saved Noah and his family, and as a, a place of remembrance, as a celebration of God saving our lives, Noah built an altar, later sacrificed on that altar. Abraham and Isaac, very familiar. We know about that. Abraham is going to sacrifice his son Isaac, but yet God provides for the sacrifice. In the tabernacle, there were two altars that were specifically given by God. An altar of burnt offering on the outside and on the inner, an altar of incense. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, we see King David and King Solomon building altars. The very first temple that King Solomon built had five different altars. The altar was important. Of course, we understand that those altars were initiated by God, expected by God, but we understand that they were pictures also of what God was going to do. Then there's altars of remembrance. I read one of those. In Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham a family, a blessing. Verse 7 and 8, And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, Unto your seed will I give this land. And there built he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence having on a mountain on the coast of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and high on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham wanted to celebrate and remember God's promise to him. So he built an altar. Some of you Old Testament Sunday school scholars will remember the battle with Moses and Amalek. And uh, Moses, every time he got tired, his arms would fall. And then Joshua and Hur held his arms up, and every time they held his arms up, uh, Israel would prevail. That's a pretty important deal. They probably wanted to remember that, so they did. In Exodus 17, they built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi, which is the Lord is my banner. They built an altar to remember what God had done after Joshua and Israel entered into the promised land. In Joshua 22, he built an altar. Verse 10 says, a great altar 
to see to, a great altar for everyone to see. Many times in Scripture, in the Old Testament, we see those leaders, Israel, building an altar of remembrance so that they could remember. But so in years to come, don't miss this, you know this, but don't miss it, their sons and daughters would come by that same path. And they would see that altar. And they wouldn't say, I wonder what this is for. Because mom and dad had told them the time God delivered them. Mom and dad had told them the time that um, what seemed impossible became possible. And where it happened and when it happened. And when little boy or little girl, son or daughter comes by and sees that altar, they say, I remember when mom told me about this. And mom's not the one honored, but God is the one honored. And then in years to come, grandson and granddaughter come by, and they see the altar that mom talked about, that grandma told mom about. And they remember what God had done for them, and they celebrate, and by celebrating and remembering, they're encouraged to know and believe if God did it for them, and God did it for them, then he can do it for me. But in the book of Judges, we have one of, the, one of the saddest verses of Scripture in all the Bible, and there rose up a generation who knew not God. How did that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. Moms and dads quit talking about God. Moms and dads and grandparents quit building altars of remembrance to God. And a whole generation, the Bible says, arose that knew not God. And I don't want to get off topic here, but we might be experiencing a whole generation in America that knows not God. Absent moms and dads, carnal moms and dads, lost moms and dads. And it might be because the church quit celebrating what God had done. I hate to take the blame for everything, but in life and in politics and in the world and in America, it all falls on the shoulders of the church. It would be a different country if the church would have kept doing what the church had always done. If the church hadn't got afraid of the government. If the church hadn't got afraid of a virus. If the church hadn't got afraid of being made fun of, or laughed at, persecuted. Please don't use that word until you've been persecuted. We see the altar was biblical in both the old and new, and I know, please don't get ahead of me, but I want us to look at the altar historically in the modern church today, not just 2024, that's not, I mean, that's pretty modern, but it's hard to believe we're there. But the idea of a church altar seems to have begun, and you can do the research on your own and fact check me, in the early 19th century by the holiness and even Nazarene churches. And that doesn't mean that there weren't altars in churches by then, but historically we see that happening. Later on, after the 1800s and into the 1900s, we start to see it more evident, but it was even in existence, or at least the idea of calling people forward, even by George Whitfield in the 1700s. He called for an immediate response. Charles Finney, ooh, that's a cuss word to some people. In the early 1800s, he employed 
what was known as the anxious bench. I've read and studied, I thought, we need to have a few anxious benches around here. Now, some of y'all are on the same level with me with some research, and and y'all know Charles Finney's, oh, we're anti-Charles Finney. I didn't say I was anti, I said there's people that are anti-Charles Finney. But he, he instituted this anxious bench, which meant, if you got anxious, now come up front. Not just as an altar call, but during the sermon, if If you got worried, you got nervous about what he was preaching, come up front. Sit down. They would call a counselor and they would sit there and talk to them. No, it was was a, a response so that they would know how to deal with this person. The reality of the church altar that we know really grew in popularity in the 20th century. We're in the 21st, by the way. First notice. Some of you have heard of Billy Sunday, who famously there was a phrase that was that came after him and his tent revivals. And actually, Billy Sunday, if you don't know who Billy Sunday was, a baseball player, great baseball player, turned preacher, turned evangelist. Uh, in 1901, he kind of started right in the early 1900s. He wouldn't just build tents. They wouldn't just build tents like we know modern. They, they would build structures uh, months, 10 months in advance, some would say, uh, pillars and wooden structures because the masses that would come. And uh, usually they said on, on average, 20% of the town or city's population would come to his meetings. And out of Billy Sunday's meetings, it became popular to hear to hit the sawdust trail. Why? Because obviously there was sawdust and there's reasons why they did sawdust. It was cheaper than flooring and temporary flooring, but also they said acoustic-wise it was great. But when he would call for a public response, people would hit the sawdust trail. Some of you around here have hit the sawdust trails of back to Bethel Camp Meet when it was 850 degrees and your mom made you dress up. I think they would have had a better response if they let people. I'm going to take a little 30 second time out here. I'm not saying that every decision that's ever been made when somebody walked the sawdust trail was a genuine, legitimate, spiritual decision. But I'm also going to tell you, I'm not God. And I'm also not the Holy Spirit. And I'm not about to use my judgment and think I've got it figured out. I'm going to let God and his power and his wisdom discern the hearts of man. Most of us in America became familiar not with Billy Sunday. Some of you might have been around Billy Sunday. No, 1901. I think I remember seeing him down in China. No. Most of us got our idea of an altar call from this man. So let's watch this memorable clip. How many people claim to be Christian, but they don't have any peace in their life? There's no joy. There's no love in their life. There's no walk with Christ. There's no thrill. They get angry quickly. They're sensitive. They're jealous. They're filled with pride. I tell you, the Christian life was never meant to be that way. 
Give your life to Christ and make sure that he lives in your heart. Some of you give your life to Christ tonight for the first time. Others of you can come and rededicate your life and say tonight, I'm going to surrender my life to Christ anew and afresh. I'm going to give myself to him. All over this place, God is speaking to hundreds and thousands of people. All of you that will come tonight and receive Christ and say, I'm going to begin. I give myself to him. I come to the foot of his cross, renouncing my sins and failures. I'm coming and give myself to him as Savior and Lord. I'm going to ask you to come. I'm going to ask you to come out of your seats from all over this great building, from up in the balconies, all around. You come and stand quietly right here in front and say tonight, I give myself to Christ. If you're with friends and relatives, they'll wait on you. If you're in a delegation, they'll wait on you. But I'm going to ask you to come right now while every head is bowed and every eye is closed. And the choir sings softly just as I am. Men, women, young people. And I'm going to warn you about something. You cannot come to Christ any time you want to. You can only come when the Spirit of God is speaking. And tonight the Spirit of God is speaking to hundreds of people here. He's speaking to you there. You can give your life to Christ right now and say tonight, I give myself to him. Many of you are church members. Many of you are Christians. But you need to rededicate your life to God. You need to promise God that from now on you're going to live the right kind of a Christian life. You're going to be the right type of a Christian. I'm going to ask you to give your life to him now. From all over the building, hundreds of you, you come and stand here right now. Just get up out of your seat right now and come and say tonight, I give myself to Christ. We're going to wait. After you've come, we're going to have a moment of prayer, a verse of scripture. Say a word to you before you come or before you go. And if you're with friends or relatives, they'll wait. You can go back and join them. But you come now and stand here as an indication that you're saying to God, I will, I will trust Christ. The choir is going to sing while they're singing, you come right now. That's right, quickly, right up out of your seat everywhere, you come. Hey, some pretty hands in a sunset. Only God knows the millions, I think it's safe to say millions of people that will be in heaven because of the ministry of Billy Graham. Now, am I foolish enough to think that everybody that came to an altar got saved that night? No. But who am I to say that a man who loved God and was called of God and preached the simple gospel and you can very easily go to the Billy Graham Library for free and see there was something about Billy Graham. And it wasn't his education. It wasn't his eloquent speaking. He was God-anointed, preached the simple gospel, and hundreds of thousands of people would respond. Say, what, what does that have to Most of us get our understanding. Every head bowed, every eyes closed. Some of us thought when we went to seminary that was in 1 Corinthians somewhere. <laughs> no, it's not. Just as I am, all 26 verses, 14 more times, until somebody comes. We grew up in that. Some of you grew up in that. Some of you didn't grow up in that. 
But who am I, and I'm going somewhere with this, who am I to say Billy Graham shouldn't have done that? You say, I know y'all don't live in the world I live in. Would somebody say that? Absolutely. And there's a whole group of people who don't like these men that I mentioned. They don't don't like them because they, they have altars or altar calls or invitations. And you ask this question, what happened to the altar? We see the de- definition of the altar, but I'm going to answer the questions by saying, the, looking at the desolation of the altar. Why has it been forsaken? And I just led into that. I believe it's, there's several possible reasons, and one is man's attempt. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, please listen to me. I'm trying to be honest and trying to be careful. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, man, ministers, and ministries have led to the desolation of the altar. I don't want you to go digging and getting mad. I've done the research for you. I know the world. I know where we're at. I know where we are academically as far as biblically and theologically. I I read stuff. I watch stuff. And I know there are people even potentially in this room who know who I'm talking about and the groups I'm talking about. And I try my best not to, not to cast or throw stones or to try to judge people's hearts. So I intentionally say willingly or unwillingly, men, ministries, ministers are possibly responsible for the desolation of the altar. Many point to the simple Well, it's not biblical. And I'm real careful when somebody says something isn't biblical or is biblical. But I think we need to be biblical. Some of these same people that don't like altar calls and don't like all this and don't like these people, I agree with a lot of what they believe. So I am not up here, as the old, 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 old man would say, grinding axes. I'm not. I got other axes to grind. I'm simply pointing out the possibility that we can go overboard with our opinions and with our policies, and I think that's possibly what's happened to the altar, and uh, it's contagious. I know pastors. I know our personalities. Well, they got a lot of people over there, and they don't preach hard anymore. They got a lot of people over there, and they don't do that kind. Of, they don't have a choir anymore. I didn't say the choir is in First Corinthians either. <laughs> I don't. You know what? They got a good crowd over there, and they got a big church, and that pastor drives a nice car, but they don't give an altar call. They quit doing it. Do you think something like that happens? Oh, I, I know what happens. I know what happens. And it's contagious. Well, they don't do it. We better not do it. Well, if, well, and then we pull out the, the theology. Well, it's not biblical. Well, maybe the word altar is not biblical for a built church, maybe, in the same biblical sense as a place of slaughter, but I like to think that most people I know have a little better sense and are at least spiritually mature enough to think When this church was built, we didn't put these steps here to kill animals. 
So I'm not going to make some decision and, and throw the baby out with the bathwater because someone thinks, oh, you think I'm not going there? I heard they got an altar. I don't know in my lifetime that you've ever been to a church or got invited to a church that had an altar and you walked in and thought, I wonder what they're killing today. <laughs> How silly is that? Well, well, it's, you know, the New Testament church, they didn't, they didn't, when they met together, they didn't have an altar. They also didn't have a sound system. I don't know that I've ever read that they had a wanna or a bus ministry or you name it. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it's not really a good argument to say we should no longer have altars in the church because they didn't use them that way. We also don't know what they used. We know they prayed. We know they prayed often. We know they prayed together. We know they prayed at certain times. We know they prayed in certain places. Who's to say they didn't come together and huddle around at the front of the speaker and pray? You want to change the name of it? Change the name of it. It's the meeting place. Come to the steps. Come up front. Don't let someone take semantics and take the altars out of church. And the reason for the altar, which is prayer and dedication and consecration, man's attempts and with that man's abuse. Yeah, no question. I'm on your side. There's been people, I'm not calling names because I'm not going to judge their hearts, but there's been preachers, there's been evangelists who, who put it on their resume. How many people have been saved? Because they got some guy, some, some Matthew, some uh, Judas uh, up in the, in the top hiding out counting people that come forward. Well, brother, you had, that was a good one today. You had 463 people come down. Hey, let's say that. All y'all get saved. Raise your hand if you got saved today. The reality is some people have abused the idea of the altar. And they, look, look, look. I, I talked about Billy Graham and only God knowing the millions. But I don't know that Billy Graham would have ever wanted somebody to introduce him by saying, this is Dr. Billy Graham who has led 14.326 million people. It's not the man he was. But no doubt there have been people who have abused this idea of the altar and the altar call and the, the invitation. Quite honestly, there's, I've seen it. I was a youth pastor for 12 years. I've been to concerts that were supposed to be, well, they were. I'm not, I'm not gonna sound that old. They, they still had preaching and stuff. How many of you, well, you, know, you, you know the deal, you've been there. I've been to youth conferences where the kids didn't know what they were going down there for. They thought they were going to get a free t-shirt because they got closer to the band that just performed. And that's dangerous. Don't get me wrong, that's dangerous. I'm not saying calling people to the front in a large venue is not okay. I also don't know that we can say, well, it's not biblical, so we shouldn't do it. But most of the people who do that, including Billy Graham, when thousands and thousands have come, they have printed and, and have thousands and thousands of dollars in printed material and counselors to come down and help people know what they just did and put something in their hand. So who am I, who are we to say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that? 
Am I to say a person like Billy Graham or a, a great evangelist of today uh, doesn't know what they're doing and they're spiritually immature so they shouldn't do it? No. I'm gonna trust that we do it right and not abuse the idea. But if we're honest, we can cast a lot of stones. And the real reason, the better reason that the altars are vacated today is not man's attempt or man's abuse, but man's arrogance. Man, woman, teenagers, our sinful pride. Now, I've preached 42 minutes, but I want you to hear this. Now, it's time to wake up. For those of you who went to sleep, I saw you already. People think I make that stuff up. I look, I see them. I can point to them right now and call their name if you want me to. And they're not kids. They're just back there talking. Isaiah said that the Lord's hand is not shortened, that he cannot save. His ear is not heavy so that he cannot hear. God is able to save. God is able to hear. But your sins, your iniquities have separated you between you and God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. It is our sin, it is our rebellion, it is our selfishness that keeps us from God. It's what keeps us from a place of consecration, a place of dedication, a place where we sacrifice and die to our sins. Paul said, die daily. It's not just the person who needs to talk to God. Please don't get ahead of me, I'm getting somewhere. I know some of you still have a question. Like, you had not approached this yet, I'm gonna get there. It's not just the person, it's not just the me that's sitting on a pew hearing the gospel preached and being convicted by the Holy Spirit. I need to respond in prayer. And yes, I'm gonna go ahead and cover it. Can I pray at my pew? Yes. Can I pray at home? Yes. We're going, I'm getting there, but I feel some of you are itching to hear it. But it's the last points. It's not just my sin, it's not just my arrogance. And I'm gonna tell you what's happened, and this is very practical in the local church today. It's other people who are so concerned about why he went down to the front. Now, I'm just, I'm just, I wish I had a verse for it. But we know it's true. I don't want to come. Man, I know I, I need to come. I need to go talk to God. And, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's going to be here. I'd like for somebody to pray for me. And if I go public down there to the altar, someone would. Y'all hear that? That's important. That's the last points. But I know she's over there. And I know she's going to wonder, what in the world is she doing down at that altar? I wonder what she did this time. It's a sad, it's a sad place to be that if a person in this church or any other church would feel pressure to come down front because they're worried about what somebody else will think. And nobody in here in their right mind can deny what I'm saying is the truth. And it just ought not be in God's house, in God's church. Jesus was eating with some sinners and Republicans one day. <laughs> and... Um, People started saying, I can't believe he's doing that. 
Y'all know this? And Jesus heard them and approached them and said, you know what? Uh, the people that are well don't need a doctor. But only the people who are sick. And I don't know if you want to put this together or not, but he's the great physician. And he can fix people that aren't well. And when we, as a church, as a local assembly, and I've said this in the last five and a half years a few times, if we can get to the place where we understand we have not arrived yet, we're not perfect, we're not sinless, and this place is a hospital for the sick, when we start to absorb that reality, we'll be a little more comfortable going to the doctor's office. And the person that's on the other side that might think, I can't believe, what has she done? They must have had a fight at their house. <laughs> That'll stop when we understand that that's a phony saying that over there. I didn't say get up and write them a letter or call them out. I didn't say that. But when we all understand that we're in this together yeah. and we're all in the emergency room together, and there's help to be gotten. And that if she gets up over there and comes to an altar, that some other she's go and pray with her and the other she's that still didn't get up for whatever reason start praying for her and say, Lord, I don't know what's going on with her, but would you please help her? Would you please minister to her? Would you please fix the problem she could? Would you give her peace? Would you give her comfort? Would you give her strength? Instead of, I wonder, oh my goodness, I, can, I wonder what's happened to her. Something's happened in the last couple decades in the Baptist church to where the altars are bare. And it could be our arrogance. Could be our pride. Could be our sin. So I've talked about the definition and desolation, but now I'm going to try to defend the altar. If you hadn't figured that out, I'm on the altar side in this argument. I believe it's needed in churches today. I think they should be utilized in churches today. But when I defend the altar, I want you to understand these two points, and hopefully I'll tie in some loose types, some loose ends here, and make people that are kind of wondering if they're mad at me right now happy. There needs to be a proper perspective for the altar. We should understand the purpose of an altar today. We should all be very clear-minded that this, we're not performing sacrifices to animals or burning incense on the altar. We should understand that it's a word that we use that is indicative and representative of the Old Testament and the New Testament altar, a place of consecration, a place of dedication, a place of sacrifice. We should also understand that this is not the only altar in existence. Not only do other churches have them, you can have one at home. I'm going to sound very, I don't know what it's going to sound like. But please, please, please try to understand and hear my heart. You're sitting in your pew. I've been there too. I haven't been doing this all my life. You're sitting in your pew. Preachers preaching, evangelist, whoever. Please hear my heart. Please don't. 
go the other direction. You can come to the front. The altars are open. If you can pray, someone will pray with you. You can pray right, right where you're at. A couple weeks ago, we learned that the word prayer is basically the Greek word for worship. To worship, please hear me, means flat on your face. It's a picture of being completely dependent on God. Can I pray sitting in my pew? Yeah. You don't have to come to our, you can pray right where you're at. Now I want you to just think about this. I want you to think about what prayer is, what worship is, what dependence is, and what sacrifice is. Now you can try to convince me if you want, but when it's a time of prayer, and a born again Christian, a professing born again Christian, sits in their pew like this, they are not praying. I also think, I know it's me and it's my thoughts. It's hard for me to assume that a person that can sit in a pew when they have a need and they need to be having a little talk with Jesus, that they could just sit at a pew and be in sincere communication with God. I didn't say you've never prayed. I, please hear me. And maybe it's because that need, y'all hearing me please? Maybe it's because that need is not a need that we know only God can fix, but it's a need that we know we can fix on our own. So we're not that serious about it. God, you need to help me out with that. And in the back of your mind, say, I'm talking to me now. I already got it figured out. But maybe we get to the place where there's a need that only God can fix, a spiritual need, an emotional need, somebody we know that's addicted, and you can't fix it, and only God can. I'm just old-fashioned enough to think if I got a son or if I got a daughter, if I got a cousin, if I got a brother or sister who's addicted and they're going down that path and they need help from God, that this ain't enough. That I might ought to, I might ought to start sacrificing. I might ought to start worshiping. I might ought to get into a place to where I'm in a position where I'm, I'm at least demonstrating to God I need your help. I can't do this. I didn't say you have to come down front and belly flop and lay out, hoop and holler and cry and convulse. I'm saying if we get to the place in the American church or especially in the church in the South where we can't publicly come to an altar and at least publicly demonstrate our dependence on him, come to a bad place. I was never confused as a child that you had to be saved at an altar during an invitation. Although I grew up in a church that had an invitation and had an altar call. Nobody ever told me, I never had the inclination that well, if you don't come right here right now, you, you never got saved. As a matter of fact, based on our poll, 65% of the people that I polled in this church didn't get saved at an altar. Imagine that. So we, nobody's confused about that. 
But we do have to have a proper, proper perspective. We as teachers, we as preachers, we as pastors, we as leaders, we, we teach people, hey, just because you walk the aisle doesn't mean you're saved. It's between you and God. It's your situation. But if somebody walks the aisle and, and I pray with them or Pastor Barry prays with them or you pray with them and they make a decision, it's our job to do the other part of the Great Commission, which is to disciple them, to teach them to grow in grace and knowledge. So don't let someone uh, prevent an altar call or an invitation just because, hey, they might, not, they, might, they might get tricked. We're not here. So we throw it all away. We throw it all away, close the altars because somebody said you might get tricked into thinking you're saved. We've already covered that. We understand in a biblical perspective of the altar, we understand that the last, final, only, substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was the altar. It was the place where he sacrificed himself in our place for the sins of the world. We understand that, therefore we can have a proper perspective of an altar in church. We understand that because Jesus died on the cross, that cross is the altar. But should that prevent us from responding publicly? We understand what Peter said, that he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. We understand what Paul said in 2 Corinthians, that he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. He took our place, his life for mine. We understand what the writer of Hebrews said when he said, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God. We need a proper perspective. Every preacher, every pastor, every teacher ought to teach the gospel clearly so that there is no misunderstanding when someone comes to a public altar to pray. And the last thing I'll say is this. I believe there's a need for public profession. I know the arguments, please, please bear with me. But Jesus said, whoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. I learned a long time ago, I heard it before I went to college and seminary, and this, this to me only makes perfect sense. We preach for response. If not, why be up here? I didn't come up here for you to think I'm smart. It's not my goal. I didn't prepare for hours and hours and hours this week. So you think, oh, man, he's got a head full of knowledge. He don't know what he's talking about, but you know. I didn't preach for 58 solid minutes today for you to be able to say, I went to church, I heard another long-winded sermon, but I checked that off and God will be happy with me. 
You may have opinions about me. I know you do, and I've got a few about you. But I promise you, I'm not gonna put in time and energy and effort and stand up here every Sunday, and no other pastor or preacher ought to do the same, without preaching for a response. I'm not saying that my worth is determined on how many people respond. That's man's attempt, and we've messed it up. I learned a long time ago, you may be thinking, you may dislike me enough to be saying, you know what, he just feels bad because people aren't coming to the altar. You're wrong. You're wrong. I got rid of that a long time ago. I had conversations with the former pastor about that a long time ago because he was discouraged and he was distraught and and others are the same way. And we kind of talked together about it and I got that thing fixed a long time ago. My worth as a pastor and preacher and gospel preacher is not based on your response. That's between you and God, and I'll sleep just fine. I'll lose sleep over something dumb I said as I go through for the next 24 hours what I preach word for word. That's what I'll lose sleep over. But if I preach the gospel, clear gospel, and I believe that the Holy Spirit is here and capable, it's between you and God. It's between a person and God how you respond. And I'll, I'll, I say I'll sleep just fine. My wife starts to see it. I'll lose sleep over a whole lot of other things. But it won't be that. It won't be that. I believe Jesus taught a public response. I believe biblical confession is affirmed by biblical baptism, which is the public response. Some of you are waiting on me to say that. There you go. Punchline done. I believe biblically the public confession of your salvation and true relationship with Jesus is taken care of by believer's baptism, by immersion, publicly. Somebody's been wondering, say amen. That shouldn't prevent us from responding publicly to Jesus. Jesus didn't come up to people and send them a note, say, hey, meet me inside, meet me over here. I'm gonna ask you, I got a important question to ask you. Hey, meet me at night, I'm gonna talk. No, Jesus called people out in front of their friends. And brothers, I got scripture for that, but you're ready to go. Hey, you want to come follow me? Come follow me. Drop your nets. Yeah, it'll be all right. Hey, how about both of you? Why'd you do that? You embarrassed me, Jesus. No. And I'm convinced, just like the preachers of old, if you won't respond to him publicly in a church, in a friendly setting, what are you going to do at work tomorrow? You don't have to answer that. I know what you're going to do. What are you going to do at school? I know what you're going to do. You're going to respond publicly in a friendly setting. You're certainly not going to respond publicly in an unfriendly setting. Place of consecration, dedication. That's what an altar is. Don't let man... Don't let me, don't let the devil, don't let pride and arrogance and silliness keep us from responding publicly at any altar, anywhere. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've prayed in different places. I've prayed in different settings. I've prayed at home. I prayed at church. I don't have Bible verses for all this, but please listen to me. There's times 
or I feel there's certain ways and certain places and certain postures to pray. There's certain times I've come to this church from my home to pray here. I didn't have to have a Bible verse that said, oh, when you feel this way, go pray at church. No, but the Holy Spirit had convicted me, and I said, hey, it's time, you need to go pray at church. I did it two weeks ago on a Saturday. Actually, one time I laid down on that pew right there where me and my wife sit. Sometimes I come pray right here. Sometimes at home I feel like it's a different posture that's needed than sitting in my office chair before I study. But I don't need a Bible verse to tell me this time's when you're on your knees and this time's when you're on your seat. I just need the Holy Spirit of God leading me when, when there's a situation that's out of my control and that I sacrifice self and consecrate myself to him. Elijah and Ahab didn't like each other and they worshiped Baal. And I'm not taking this scripture out of context. I'm saying this in full disclosure. I want to use this. Elijah said unto all the people, come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. I know the type of altar that was there. I know that Baal built altars, but there was also an altar to God that had been torn down and replaced by false gods. And Elijah said, hey, let's fix this altar. Let's build God's altar. Tear it up. Maybe it's time, and I understand the context, that in the church today, we rebuild the altar. And we're not ashamed to come publicly before him. Church, I'm your pastor until otherwise. And I don't want anybody in here, anybody in here to ever get up and come to an altar publicly and somebody think what happened to them. I can't fix that, but I don't want it. What I want you to do is anytime someone comes to an altar, I want you to think, hey, I'm going to go pray with him or her. I'm going to pray right now with them. Or you know what? It's not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me, oh Lord. Standing in need and need of prayer. Y'all know that song? And it goes on, it's not my mama, it's not my daddy, but it's me, oh Lord. Standing. And then it goes on, it says, not the preacher, not the deacon, but it's me, oh Lord. Standing in need of I want... This is my desire for this church. I want this altar and any altar in any church to be a place where you can pray, you can pray for, or you can be prayed for at any time. Would you pray with me? Father, you know my heart. You know my desire. You know my conviction is to lead our people to be men and women of prayer. God, I know there's an enemy and enemies who want to keep your people from praying and tapping into the power that only comes from you. I pray that we would be bold in our preaching, in our teaching, but bold in our praying. May this place be a place where people understand it's a hospital for sick. And when you come here, you can get help. And you can come publicly and not be ashamed and not be made fun of. You can come publicly because when you come publicly, someone else will see your need for prayer and they'll pray for you and pray with you. God, as we close out this service, I don't really know much more to say or do. But I want our church and our people to be a, a people of prayer. 
God, only you know what's ahead in our life. Only you know what phone call we'll get. Only you know what situation we'll find ourselves in weeks or months or years from now. But I pray we'll be believers who are so in tune with you in prayer that we'll be ready. Certainly it'll still be tough. I know it'll be hard. But help us to be people who are already in prayer and not driven to prayer. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.